1: Tune in to On The Schmooze to listen as I ask deep questions to elicit untold stories about leadership and networking. And where can people subscribe? Find the show at ontheschmooze.com or on marketingpodcast.net, or just search for it wherever you get your podcasts. You heard them. Go subscribe. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know
0: there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy.
1: This episode of Uncorking a Story is brought to you by the Michael Carlin novel Motel California. Buy it in ebook or paperback format wherever books are sold online. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to share with you my interview with George Calderisi, who's the author of numerous bestsellers, including his latest book. The Coronado Conspiracy. It's important to know that before George was a successful bestseller, he was a career naval aviator who served our country for over 30 years, a fact that has heavily influenced his writing. Like many authors, George is afflicted by what I like to call the what-if syndrome, meaning that he takes some element of his professional life and wonders, what if this happened? What if that happened? And so often, that's how stories are born. And I want to share with you a what if moment that I had just yesterday. Now, I've got three 16 year olds at home, and and that's right. If you did that math correctly, you'll know that I'm the father of triplets. And one of them, uh, my little Gracie, not so little anymore. I mean, she is 16. Um, uh, I have to say, she's the world's biggest Taylor Swift fan. At least uh, that's what she claims to be. Anyway, she's wanted to see Taylor, or Tay Tay, as I like to call her, since she was in the second grade. And since I'm not a huge believer in taking eight-year-olds to concerts, I've resisted for a long time. But this past Christmas, I did present Gracie with four tickets to see Tay-Tay on July 20th. Um, And just so you know the lengths that I had to go in order to actually get these tickets, um, I had to join Tay-Tay's fan club so I could get them pre-sale because no doubt I I was sure she was going to sell out. Uh, MetLife Stadium, which is in New Jersey, and that's where we saw the show last night. Which also explains why my voice is a little bit groggy this morning. Uh, lots of cheering for Tay Tay. Uh, for the record, since I joined that fan club, I get emails about her cats daily, and of course, I could unsubscribe, but deep down inside, I really do care about uh, Meredith and Olivia. Uh, <laughs> anyway, back to back to my what if. So I get these tickets in, um, in December. They're in Section 324 of MetLife Stadium. And, uh, of course, that's where the Giants and Jets play. And to put this all in perspective, if you look at the stadium, the words MetLife are at the very, very top of the bowl, uh, very high up in the air. And our four seats were so high up that I was joking to Grace, um, you know, since December, that we were practically sitting on the word life at the top of the stadium. I mean, they were, they were the nosebleeds. Anyway, so yesterday morning, I said to myself, "What if there were better tickets available?" So lo and behold, I go on to uh, to the Ticketmaster website and I see that there are actually a few seats that are much better than ours available. It's pretty reasonably priced, and I'm guessing it's because it was so close to the event, um, meaning that the event was just hours away, so they weren't uh, they weren't really jacking up ticket prices because there was a fair number available. anyway, so I buy four seats on the floor. And, um, I, I posted my original tickets for resale at a little bit of a discount. They, they sold quickly. So I, I didn't have to eat too, too much of that. Um, but I never told Gracie that uh, I had made the change. So I, for the entire day, I kept joking to her, her friend who came with us and my son that, you know, we were definitely sitting, you know, either on the words met or on the words life at the top of the stadium. So we get to, uh, we get inside, um, and we're walking to the line or towards the line for floor level seating. And she's like, Why, we're going the wrong way. You know, we've got to go up the escalators. And I said, no, no, um, I have a little surprise for you. So she breaks down in tears when she realizes where we're sitting. I mean, it was a very, very special moment. And uh, I, was, I was feeling like a good dad at that point in time. But like any infomercial tells you, uh, oh, wait, there's more. So during the show, Taylor actually leaves... I'm sorry, Tay-Tay. Tay-Tay. Tay-Tay leaves the main stage to go to a side stage, which actually happened to be right near where we were sitting. So when Gracie sees this happening, um, she starts beaming, and I'm worried that she's going to lose her voice because she's screaming so loudly. Um, So she does a couple of songs in this main stage, and right behind us, there's actually like a little alleyway and it it was blocked off for the entire concert, and I was wondering why it was blocked off because it was you know a bit of a thoroughfare to get from one side of the the field to the other. Uh, anyway, as as Taylor is performing, you know this acoustic song, uh, there's a number of state troopers lined up behind me, and I realize what's about to happen. I mean, Tay Tay herself is about to ro- walk right by where we're standing, and there's nobody behind us. I mean, it's basically us like a, a, a barrier, and then this little walkway. So sure enough, Taylor finishes a song, she gets down from the stage, and then all of a sudden, all these bodyguards come, and Taylor is walking, and she is right there. She reaches out and starts grabbing the hands of all the fans who are lined up. And of course, Grace has her hand way out there. So Tay-Tay herself took a minute and she high-fived my Gracie. So, oh my goodness. I mean, it was... Uh, she lost her mind. I mean, literally, my daughter lost her mind. And uh, on the ride home from the stadium last night, I was given the title of Best Dad Ever. I know. It's, uh, it's pretty amazing. Uh, and I'm predicting that will last till about mid-morning this morning. Uh, until I do something, of course, that will screw that up. But I'll take it. You know, for, for that brief moment in time, I will take the title of Best Dad Ever. Anyway, I've got to get back to George Galdarisi. Uh, I know you're going to enjoy this interview with George, especially especially if you like stories about guys from Brooklyn who crave adventure and therefore go to the U.S. Naval Academy, have a 30-year career, and then weave their experiences into thrilling works of military fiction. So, uh, without any more interruptions, here is my fascinating conversation with best-selling author, George Galderisi. You know, the um, San Diego weather
0: report's the most boring one in America. It's always <laughs> 72 and sunny, but no one's complaining.
1: Except, you know, the only time it's not is whenever I travel there. Oh, really? <laughs> I, I always wind up, you know, coming in on a day when, uh, you know, that 364th day when, when it decides to, to, to rain, when, when precipitation falls from the sky.
0: Oh golly. Well, the chamber of commerce probably will ask you not to come again, but I won't tell them.
1: <laughs> That's a, I think I'm the common denominator. There you go. <laughs> um, well, uh, thanks for, thanks for calling in, um, i do uh, certainly appreciate it look forward to i've been actually looking forward to this conversation uh since since last we spoke yeah, and I have as well this is
0: um you know as we talked about before, when you write, you do it to connect with readers and you know if someone has your book you don't know what they're thinking so it's a, it's a good chance to
1: connect directly one of the things that i'm I'm really curious about is kind of the um the addition of your writing career to to your military career. But I'd say even before we get there, I just, I, I kind of want to start a, start from the, the real beginning in terms of kind of where, where you were born and, and kind of where you came from.
0: Yeah, sure. Well, um, no, I was bro- born in Brooklyn, New York, which I think might make some of your listeners chuckle because it seems that, um, you know, every world war II movie that you ever see, there's some guy from Brooklyn that everyone's poking fun at, um, <laughs> But I uh, I grew up from Brooklyn, New York, uh, went to parochial grade school, St. Charles Borromeo, went to Brooklyn Technical High School, which was an incredibly great school, very technical. And uh, we had about 6,000 students, all boys back in the day, no girls. And we placed dozens of people in places like MIT and Caltech and Rensselaer. And you went off to be an engineer and architect, and you worked for your life. And at 65, you got your gold watch. And that was it. And that didn't seem very exciting to me. So I um, applied for, was fortunate enough to be accepted to the U.S. Naval Academy because I was, I was really looking for adventure and um, didn't know whether I wanted to make the Navy a career, but I wound up doing it for 30 years and it went by pretty quick. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's a, a quick synopsis of, of how I got to, um, the end of my 30
1: year Navy career. So you looking, looking for an adventure, but, but I have to dial back to, to growing up in Brooklyn because my mother, uh, my mother was born in Brooklyn and she also did, um, I don't, I wouldn't say parochial school. She went to Notre Dame Academy out on Staten Island. Um, sure. And there was a big, a big to do when my mother and father met and got married. Cause my dad was from New Rochelle, lifelong Yankees fan uh my mother uh Brooklyn Dodgers fan and when the Dodgers left she was a little heartbroken but uh they they eventually you know came came to a compromise and uh we were all raised as Mets fans.
0: Yeah well that's a, that's the re, remarkable um uh family drama. We had that same drama in um in my family. My younger brother is uh, who still lives in New York is a is a rabid Yankees fan and my dad um passed away some years ago but he was a rabid a Mets fan, but uh, vis-a-vis your mother rooting for the Dodgers when um, uh, it was announced the Dodgers might leave Brooklyn, I think I was in second grade, and okay. uh, I went door-to-door with my buddies with petitions to keep the Dodgers in Brooklyn, and uh, we thought, you know, we were earnest youngsters, and we thought that if enough people signed the petition, then that would happen. Well, it, it didn't, but that um, that was our goal.
1: Um, you know, you mentioned like there's always a guy in the World War II movies from Brooklyn. Um, you know, the one that comes to my mind um, is uh, Biloxi Blues with Matthew Broderick and Christopher Walken. And I believe he, they, you know, the, the character Eugene Jerome came from, what What part of Brooklyn was it? Wasn't it, um, oh gosh, there's it, a big Russian population there now. Uh, Brighton Beach, Brighton Beach. Yeah,
0: Brighton Beach, Coney Island. You're exactly right.
1: Yeah, yeah, so that that's that's the uh, the World War II movie with um, uh, you know a, a very clear, very direct Brooklyn uh, <laughs> guy from Brooklyn in it.
0: Yeah, exactly. So there's a lot of good memories there.
1: So you no, so you uh, you you join um you join the the Navy in order to kind of have a little uh, have, have a little bit more more adventure in your life because kind of the the retiring at sixty five um, you know, kind of living a nine to five life didn't seem like, uh, like it was for you and you wanted more adventure. Did you, did you find the adventure you were looking for in the United States Navy?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, every day was an adventure and that's why I kept doing it for 30 years. I went into naval aviation, uh, flew helicopters, um, and, uh, did that for about 20 years. And then when you get to a certain point, uh, they say, "Well, you've had your your fun flying. Now we want you to drive ships." So I was um, at several commands in what we call the Gator Navy, the Amphibious Assault Navy, and then was a Carrier Strike Group Chief of Staff for uh, my final final five years in the Navy. So, uh, like I said, it all went by um, in a flash. It didn't
1: seem like thirty years. Do you uh, do you still get to fly?
0: You know, I love flying. Uh, I was fortunate enough to get it to do it right till the end of my career, which is a little unusual, but. To me, it was kind of like reading a good book. Once you you close that chapter, you you move on to a different book. So I haven't had that urge to, you know, get up in a private plane and and uh, kind of toddle around. And I don't think you you get that adventure. And and no one wants that kind of
1: adventure in a private plane anyway, do they? <laughs> I would imagine not. I would imagine not that level of excitement. <laughs> Um, when, when did you start writing? Because I, I know you've had a, you a very long career in the Navy, um, and, and you found the adventure you were looking for, you know, writing, um, and, and publishing specifically can, can be seen as an adventure. When, when did you start embarking down, down that path?
0: Well, uh, there's a couple of parts to that. Uh, first of all, when, um, I had some, some good commanding officers who, you know, emphasized that the Navy was more than just flying if you're a pilot, and encouraged me to write for professional magazines. So we had several Navy professional magazines: the U.S. Naval Institute Proceedings, the Naval War College Review, and others. And so I um I decided I I would do that, and I I got into it and had some editors who were very kind and, and helped me along and and corrected my awkward prose in a in a gentle way. So I I was doing articles uh, for professional magazines for, I've been doing that for decades, and then the, um, I'm anticipating your next question, the whole book process started um, a little bit um, unexpectedly. I, I took, a, I was getting a master's degree uh, in international relations and took a course on Law of the Sea, and uh, if you know anything about Law of the Sea, it's a, it's the biggest UN um, treaty ever negotiated. Um Unfortunately, in in 1982, the Reagan administration decided we wouldn't sign it and we wouldn't ratify it. And so I think something on the order of 158 nations have um, now uh, ratified the convention. The U.S. is one of the lone nations not to. So I I got with a co-author and and wrote some books about Law of the Sea, nonfiction books, explaining why it was to the U.S. advantage to um, ratify the treaty. Um, And then the, the fiction part started completely uh, by accident. Uh, my best friend in the world who I played tennis at Brooklyn tech with Bill Blake, who's a accomplished screenwriter. Um, lived in, uh, lived in Santa Monica, was visiting, uh, one weekend and we were watching this wretched Steven
1: Seagal movie. No, no, I have to the- ask what, what movie was it? Cause I, I, I've seen every Steven Seagal movie oh. and while wretched, you know, highly entertaining. Yeah. Yeah. I don't
0: recall uh, with a lot of kinetics <laughs> and, uh, I, I said to Bill, you know, this is wretched. Why don't you write a screenplay for something better? And he said, well, why don't you write a novel? And I said, well, I don't write novels. I write articles and I write nonfiction books. And you know how it is when your best friend is kind of poking you and going, oh, you can do it. So he encouraged me to do that, kind of held my hand through the process, and um, put together a manuscript for, uh, for my first book.
1: You know, it's interesting and, and, and I've talked to, you know, a lot of best-selling authors and, and a lot of the stories start the same way. I mean, um, uh, you know, a, a guy I, I just spoke with a, a few weeks ago, Andrew Peterson, said he was complaining to his wife that he had nothing good to read and she challenged him with, well, why don't you write something? And that's, that's kind of how it started for him. And, you know, just kind of that, that, um, that push over the edge, that, that peer pressure from somebody you're close with. And you know, I kind of putting the wheels in motion, to me, that's that's kind of fascinating. Um, you know, I, I have a similar story. I I kept a, a travel blog, and, you know, I have a day job as um, a consumer researcher focus group moderator, so I, I would keep a travel blog of all the funny things that would happen to me over, you know, while I travel. And then, you know, a lot of my friends said the same thing, you know, start writing, put this down, you know, put a story around it, this could be funny. And um, that's what that's what got me into it, and you know, as you know, that the bug bites you and you live with the sting.
0: Yeah, you're right. It is. It is. Um, I don't know how many people just wake up one Tuesday morning and say, "Hey, I think I'll write a novel." It's just like <laughs> you said. You want if someone prods you from the outside. It gives you a little bit of um, a little bit of an urge.
1: When when you when you first started writing, when you, when your screenwriting friend kind of uh, gave you that nudge, what what were some of those? you know, early, um, early stories like, and would you ever share them with anybody today?
0: Well, I mean, um, they, the, the old saying is write what you know. So I, I gravitated towards, um, you know, military techno things. I mean, I was an avid reader of, uh, of uh, Tom Clancy and Stephen Coons and Dick Couch and, and a lot of the well-known military thriller writers. So I, I just started, you know, writing uh, what I knew and, Gee, would I share it with other people? Um, probably not, because um, not to tell you too much, but you know, I mentioned I went to Brooklyn Technical High School and the US Naval Academy back in the day and when I was at the academy, it was the Cold War and the Russian submarine threat, and um and we were all very uh technically educated, which means hardly any English courses. <laughs> uh, Brooklyn Tech, hardly any. So I, you know, I didn't come to writing with um uh, probably with the best equipment. <laughs> so uh, you know, a lot of my early efforts were um, were pretty amateurish, and um, you know, I, I learned along the way. And um, and, and fast forward to this uh, Op Center series that Dick Couch and I collaborated on. Our um, our editor at the St Martin's Press, Charlie Spicer, is um, you know he's he's like a god. he would uh, give us feedback on our our inputs and it was, you know, it's kind of like the old commercial. I should have had a V8. (laughs) It's not like, how dare you mess with my pros. It's like, why didn't I think of that? So, um, so yeah, long winded way of saying, um, um, my early efforts weren't dazzling, but I think I've learned and, and applied some of what I've learned along the way.
1: Well, that's, you know, it's interesting because I, I often think of, like, the act of writing as a very solitary process where, you know, y- you'll often find me kind of very much alone somewhere um, in a corner, some some quiet place in my house. Yet, really, to, to take it to the next level, it, it does become a collaborative process in that you need those... Um, outside readers, you know, you need, and so I know some people use beta readers, but really editors, um, whether it's, you know, content editing or, or, you know, line copy editing, just that input, you know, that, those V8 moments like you're talking about to me um, have taught me so much about, um, you, know, you know, every time I, I, ex- I go through it, I know that it's painful because um, it, there is a little bit of an ego boost sometimes, but you always come out better for it.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely, and and I just um, I've got a colleague, um, B.C. Reed, who writes nonfiction and fiction, and he was kind enough to let me be a beta reader for his um, latest novel, Status Six, and um, you know I think that's the process we we all tend to follow now, not just to put it together, ship it to an agent or publisher, and hope for the best.
1: Where, when did an agent come into your life um, and what was that process like? Cause I have a lot of, you know, a lot of people who listen to this are aspiring authors, um, you know, or people earlier on in the career. Um, and that's one, one question that I get, you know, frequently from other people is, you know, when, when should I start reaching out to an agent or how do you reach out to an agent or what's the secret to getting someone to pay attention to if you're unknown? What, what was your journey to finding an agent like? So,
0: um, yeah, like I said, I started out as a, as a, as a rank amateur at this. I, um, quite frankly, went to the library, got a lot of books on how to publish your novel and uh, started out, and this is back before, even before um, email, so this kind of dates me, and uh, mailed letters to dozens of agents and publishers, both. I, I did a kind of a dual track and got some sniffs from some agents saying, you know, I I might like to see what you're thinking about. And then one publisher, a guy named Stephen Power at Amon Books, um, cold called me one day and he said, I want to buy your book. And, you know, after uh, dancing around in hysterics for a while, I said, okay, you know, and send me something or mail me something. And then I called my friend Bill Blyke and he went hysterical (laughs) and, uh, Connected me with a writer friend of uh, his who's now a dear friend of mine, Robert Masalo, who's written many best selling books. And Robert recommended his agent, a, a gentleman named John Boswell, um, not the famous English John Boswell guy who's been dead for centuries, but John Boswell who lives in New York. And um, basically, I'd done his work for him. I had gotten, um, gotten a, a publisher to, to want to buy the book. So I backed in to John, and the good news is he looked at the contract, which was, um, you know, all as most of the ones they draft are boilerplate in favor of the publisher, and he made some changes to that. So, so I kind of backed into an agent that way. Um, I don't think today in 2018 um, many people would be successful just um, throwing something over the transom to the publisher because the publishing industry has changed, Mike, as you know. Yeah. Um, uh, smaller staffs, uh, a lot more, uh, uh, economic pressure. So now publishers depend on agents to be their um, uh, to be their filter. So, uh, most, when I teach writing courses, uh, the, the advice I give is to just find an agent and there's some tricks of the trade to do. And that's uh, many of which I, I assume, you know, but, um, some of that stuff I, I put on my, um, on my blog as uh, writing tips for people to sort of help them along the way to, um, to find an agent. But yeah, I think the, the, the school solution now is to uh, find an agent.
1: Yeah. I, I I mean, I don't know any other way uh, around, around the agent thing. Um, and, and that's not something that I've really been successful with either. I mean, I, I could literally wallpaper my walls with, uh, with the uh, form rejection letters that, and maybe I shouldn't admit that, but it's uh, maybe a testament to my own humility. <laughs> but um. Uh, which I, I've never really been that much accused of being too humble. But it's, it is one of the biggest challenges for aspiring authors is finding an agent to take, um, take a chance on on an unknown. Um, because in the age where, you know, self-publishing is, um, you know, is, is available pretty much at your fingertips, um, you know, a lot of people think that, that they can do it. And, um, you know, there's a lot of noise out there. So, uh, and and interestingly, you're, you're uh, another person I talked to who, who was able to sell to the publisher first and then find the agent. And of course, it's a little bit easier finding the agent when you've got a, an offer in hand. Um,
0: right. No, exactly. And, and so, um, I'm again, as a service to your listeners, uh, uh, Mike, I, um, uh, if you wanted to steer them to my website on my website, I've got a, a pull down called services. And when I do courses where I teach writing, I publish all of those um, slides, PowerPoint slides, uh, on my website. So that's there now. It's a, a course I t- taught here in Coronado this um, uh, this spring. It's a six six course thing. But I'll just cut to the chase very quickly on the the hints I try to give people about finding agents. Is that um, you know most writers are, are gentlemen and gentlewomen, and in the acknowledgments they thank their agent. So the part of the art of this is to find books in the libraries that are like yours, whether it's a military thriller or a detective novel or a romance novel, and um, see what agents um, agented those types of books. And then you go to the uh, publisher's um, uh, section of the library where they got all the agents listed with all their contact info. And then you know your 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 email to the agent is. I see you agented Johnny Jones' um, detective novel XYZ. Uh, I've written one uh, that is the same genre as his, but it is uh, more fabulous or more contemporary or more wonderful or whatever the case may be. And I wondered if you would consider uh, doing that. And so what you do is you you know, take that list of hundreds and hundreds of agents and you neck it down to a, a small number that you actually have a better chance of um, – of scoring with
1: you know it's, it's great that you have that um area on your website um you know helping out uh, aspiring authors and one of the things that i've noticed about about people who have have been successful in this field is that they are always I'm, i should say i shouldn't say always more often than not i find that they're willing to take the time to mentor somebody you know in big and small ways so in a big way spending some time talking to them small ways, you know, by, by, you know, just sharing some advice. Um, and uh, it, it's actually something that I think is somewhat unique to, uh, to writers because I know in the business world, um, you don't always take the time to mentor your, your competitors, so to speak. Um, but, but it's not necessarily like that with, uh, with successful authors. And I think that's a fantastic quality to, to have.
0: Yeah, I think we you know, cause writing is, is a, it's a tough chancy business. So I think we're, um, uh, we, we, we look at ourselves as an oppressed minority and we need to give each other support. And most of us have, as I described to you, have had a, a hand up along the way. So we, you know, shame on us if we don't share that with uh, people coming
1: up, um, coming
0: up after us.
1: When, when you started to have success as an author, um, you can, can, can you point to any ways in which your, your life had changed? Um, you know, did you ever have that moment where you thought, hey, you know, maybe I'll um, maybe I'll stop what I'm doing as my day job or my my initial career and, and focus on uh, being an author full time?
0: Yeah, no, thanks for asking that. And, and others have asked me that. And I've asked that myself, I guess. Um, part of the answer, Mike, is that, uh, as you described earlier, writing is a pretty solitary um solitary avocation. I mean, you, you kind of lock yourself in your room away from the people you love for long periods of time. And so, um, that wasn't something I wanted to do 24 seven. So, you know, the, my day job is a very liberating, get out, work with people, engage. And, and so it's, um, to me having that dual track is, um, is, uh, important. Uh, it's not for other people. I mean, some people like James Patterson who pump out three or four books a year. I mean, that's, that's all they do, and they do it very well. But uh, yeah, for me, and I think for a lot of us, we, uh, we have a life outside writing. You
1: know, it's funny you mentioned Patterson. I used to work with a woman. I, I kind of cut my teeth in the advertising industry. And uh, I used to work with a woman named Linda Stallone. No relation to the, uh, the, uh, the, the very um, excellent Sylvester Stallone, but I, she used to work directly for James Patterson when he was a copywriter in the advertising world. Um, and then he left because, you know, that, uh, that Alex, Alex cross series, uh, did, did pretty well by him. Um, Oh yeah. And, uh, and now you're right. He, he just, I think he just, uh, wrote a book with Bill Clinton. If I'm not, um, if I'm not mistaken, I should say President Clinton, but, um, oh. you know, I don't know how well the book is doing, but he, he is prolific with, uh, with the writing that, that James Patterson.
0: Yeah, he's remarkable. And one of his secrets, um, is if you look at the length of his books, um, they're short Mm. and they're 50 and he can churn them out much more quickly. And again, just advice to uh, aspiring writers. I've got some very dear friends, um, you know, who who've written novels and they've been ambitious. Two hundred thousand word plus uh, books. And, you know, I have to say, you know, Lou or Gary, whoever the guy is, I said, you know, who? who's going (laughs) to read this? You're passionate about it, but you know, it's tough to hold someone's attention for that long when they want to move on and and do something else.
1: Yeah. Especially right out of the gate as an unknown. I mean, that's um, that uh, it's wonderful that actually you can churn those out, but that's a, that's a tall order for, um, yeah, that that's a tall order for Ken Follett, you know, let alone, uh, you know, Joe Schmo in, uh, you know, plantation Florida. I don't know why I'm picking up plantation maybe because I was born there.
0: Well, well we, we live in a world now of, you know, 140, 280 characters. So, um, so you know, you, you kind of do the math and go, our attention spans aren't what they maybe used to be.
1: Hey, I'm just happy that people are reading. I mean, more, more often than not, you know, people who I've known all my life are like, oh, man, is it, is it available as an audio book? Because, yeah, I just don't read.
0: <laughs> yeah, so, here hear uh, you.
1: Well, you've had, I mean, you've had... Um, Four New York Times bestsellers in a row, and what what I'm sure is that there there is somebody out there listening to this who's going to wonder like what's what's the secret sauce? How, how do you do that? I mean, because that is a that's a great accomplishment. So um, I'm sure you know th- there's no overnight success, um, but uh, I guess first of all, how do you feel about having four New York Times bestsellers in a row? Well, you
0: know, it, it, it feels great. Uh, having said that. Um, the the four books um, that you were kind enough to mention, the first one was um, uh, Act of Valor, which uh, was the novelization of that SEAL movie that I, I suspect you or, or, or many of your listeners have seen. And so um, having the book with a movie tie-in, uh, Dick and I were, you know, humble enough to say if it weren't for the movie, the book might not have been a bestseller because people kind of groove on movies. And then the Op Center series, again, with the Clancy name. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people are attracted to that. Now, if the, you know, if the, the books were junk uh, we we would have been kicked off the squad and not write them anymore. So I think it's a, you know, it's, we were fortunate to have that sort of high cover of the at least people being interested in the Clancy name, but, but, but to, to tell you the way we did it and um, if that's the secret sauce, and again, it's a, I'm a former military guy, so a little bit linear maybe, but um I always outline. So when we, Dick and I first had the conversations with St. Martin's Press about, we auditioned. They had many people that were auditioning to restart the series. Um, We wrote a a treatment, which is what's the high concept? Where does this take place? And character descriptions of every main character. Full on treatment. So there was not a lot of guesswork. In other words, the editor could look at that and go, okay, these guys are on the right course. And then we did a narrative outline, which, um, if your readers aren't, or your listeners aren't familiar with that, it's a sort of a chapter by chapter, not all the words, but several paragraphs on each chapter about what happens. And, you know, when we shift that to the editor, um, it gave him confidence that we, we knew where we were going and there wouldn't be any bad surprises at the end. And, um, so that was kind of our secret that we didn't labor away at a hundred thousand word manuscript and throw it over the transom and the editor say, Oh my God, what are you guys doing? So they enabled us to get the first book done and then do the same process for the subsequent books. And we were able to churn out one book a year for, um, uh, for several years. So, um, so yeah, if there's a, and again, having said that, I there, I know people who are great writers who don't outline and just start writing. I admire them. Um, I mean, I, I am in awe of them, but for me and for most of the people I know well, they they, they outline. And, and that way, you know, you've heard of writer's block. Um, you don't get writer's block. You just follow the outline. That doesn't mean that you follow it rigidly and things don't happen along the way and to change somewhat but it's not like oh gee what am i going to write about today so um i hope that's helpful i hope that makes
1: sense very much and it's very consistent with um you know what what andrew peterson has told me and, and another bestseller lou aronica and lou specifically swears by the outline he says if there's one piece of advice he could give anybody it's don't be afraid to outline and certainly don't you know, don't view it as handcuffs, you know, you're not wed to it, but it's very important to know kind of the broad strokes of where you're going. And if things happen along the way, if you get inspired to do something differently, you of course can do that. Um, but yeah. I, I've even found that it, it, it's helped me. My, the first thing I ever wrote and published um, took me about two and a half years to write and um, wasn't, wasn't the world's greatest novel in the world. Um, but I struggled with it so much because i didn 't know I had, a, I, had a, I had a character first, so it was like it was character driven I knew this character inside and out, but i didn 't know the story um, i stopped I stopped writing from a character perspective and then and then really started out once I started outlining the story, even in broad strokes um, it it, it just made the writing process for me much more efficient and it was actually much much better and the stories became much better because I was kind of forcing myself to know um you know where where things were gonna go and how things were gonna wind up. And it, it was it was the, some of the best advice anybody had ever given me
0: yeah and and to, to pile on to that, um John Boswell, my first agent, uh has <clears throat> written books about publishing and his strongest advice is write something you're passionate about because that carries you through. If you, if, uh, in my opinion, if you sit there and come up with some story that has nothing to do with what you care about, what you know about, it, it's awfully hard to keep going when you get stuck. And to give you some examples with that uh, Op Center series, again, I'm a Navy guy, military guy, and I always wondered about our um, unmanned systems. Uh, that we use for surveillance and and whatnot, and like the Global Hawk. And I said, well, what if the enemy could hack into that? And what if they could feed our military false information where we, you know, attack someone who we shouldn't attack or something like that, so that our first ops center book, uh, Out of the Ashes, was built around that thing. And then uh, the Navy has a a ship that's in a little bit of difficulty called the littoral Combat Ship, Um, and it's not – very heavily gunned or armored. And so I said, well, what if it's in the waters off North Korea? And and what if it gets in a duel with a North Korean destroyer or frigate? How's it going to fare? And what would happen? And so that was the, the high concept for, um, our second op center book, uh, into the fire. And then, um, that's carried through to my Rick, Rick Holden thriller series. Uh, mm-hmm. the first book uh, out of the chute, Carnada conspiracy, um, you know, I said um, sometimes the, a president and his military are, are not on the same page. I think it can go all the way back to the Korean War with uh, President Truman and Douglas MacArthur, which, you know, who he eventually had to fire. And so what if the president's doing things that the military is really aghast about? And, and what if they don't want him to be president anymore? What, what would they do or how would they do that? And so that became the plot of the, the Coronado conspiracy. And then... Um, you know, the book I'm about to launch this summer uh, for duty and honor um, set in the Arabian Gulf, uh, where obviously that's a flashpoint of the world. And um, we have countries like Iran who don't have our best interests at heart. And um, so, you know, what would happen if Iran is doing things, doing terrorist attacks on our people? And what if the nation or the president's not willing to do something? What if a terrorist strike group commander took matters into his own hands? And it became something like heart of darkness on an aircraft carrier. So, um, again, those are things I, I think about and worry about in my day-to-day professional life. And so that's, again, if you can probably tell the things I'm passionate about. And that's what, you know, on a day when the prose isn't flowing real well, that's kind of what gets me over the hump. Like, I need, need to tell this story.
1: Yeah, and I guess you know that that that's a kind of another argument for why it's important to 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 maybe have a life or, or somewhat of a career outside of writing because that allows you to have those experiences where you can, you know, continually ask the what if you know what if this happened what if that happened. Um, yeah. I, I want to go back to you know you mentioned the, the Coronado conspiracy um, why and, and and you know because kind of talking about the, you know the military and the president not always being on the same page. You know, what, what is it about that story that, that, that keeps it so relevant in 2018? I, I mean, I know you mentioned, uh, you know, Douglas MacArthur, General MacArthur, and and, um, and President Truman, and the Korean War, but w- what's, what's the relevancy here today? Well, I
0: think it's, um, I think, you know, since 9-11, people's attitude about the military has changed, and they see what, terrorists can do to us. And they see that, again, with the hunt for bin Laden, things like that, um, um, you, you need to take action. Otherwise terrorists will operate with in, impunity. But I think, um, by and large, uh, many people uh, up to it, including elected leaders don't really get what the, um, the military does when they're not at war. And what they do is they train. Otherwise, when they do go to war, they'll be, you know, hopelessly um, ill prepared. So in the scenario for the Coronado conspiracy, and these things have come up from elected officials in the past it's well, we've got all those Navy amphibious ships with um, extra beds and extra bunks. And we've got all these homeless people. So why don't we just pull them dockside in San Francisco and Los Angeles and you know, let homeless people live in them. And if there's a war, they can go off and they can, you know, do that. And, um, you know, why do we need military discipline for um, for soldiers who've grown up in the millennial age? Or, You know, why not just sort of let them just take their time and come to work when they come to work? So again, th- these are things that um, keep coming up and having spent 30 years in the military and still work with the military in my day job, it, it's anathema to military leaders. So that's that becomes sort of the, um, the dichotomy of, um, uh, and again, not all elected officials, but some elected officials who don't have the military experience. Uh, and today you can look at the stats of how many senators, congressmen have served in the military, very few. So um, I think that's that natural dichotomy of not understanding uh, and, and that's what brings the the tensions and the um, and the disagreements.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting. It's it, my my wife and I actually talk about this when when you know during election seasons. But you know when if you think about um, you know Congress and um, and even the office of the president, and these are the people who are you know able to send other people to war, do you think, and you don't have to answer this question, I'm just, I'm just curious, but do you think there should be some kind of law or rule where if you're going to be serving in the federal government that you should have some military service in your background? Um, I, well,
0: I haven't thought about that specifically. I think that would be awfully difficult to um, legislate. <laughs> um, and I do think uh, the tide is turning now, and if you look at the um, uh, some of the primaries this year, in fact, there was a front page New York Times article above, above the fold about um, uh, many um, former naval officers, some of them Naval Academy graduates, and I'm not saying that because I'm a graduate myself, who are running in the primaries, some of them Democratic primaries, and the fact that they have served, and the fact that people experience 9-11 and they know what we're doing in Afghanistan, for example, um, that people are uh, responding to that. So I'm not saying the tide is completely turned, but I'm saying it's um, I'm more hopeful than I was a few years ago mm. that that is happening by osmosis. But to answer your question directly, I don't think that's something the, the nation's um, willing to legislate, just like I don't think the draft will, will come back. I, I think it's going to be a
1: volunteer military for as long as you and I are alive. Yeah. Um, you know, the other thing you mentioned, uh, interestingly is, you know, um, you know, talking about the, the Coronado conspiracy and, and having, you know, just sending people, you know, off to, off to war without that much training. Um, and I could have done a horrible job paraphrasing that, but, um, you know, I think of in the workplace, I, you know, I've had to manage, um, yeah, manage millennials, let's say. And, uh, they, they do get a bad rap, um, but there's a reason for that because it's uh, there's a fair amount of entitlement there. And, and I always hate, you know, painting with such a broad stroke, but the, I've seen the patterns. Um, I, how, um, I guess I, I had lost tra- track of where I was going with this question, um, but uh, I think I'll probably just edit that out of the interview, George.
0: <laughs> I just... don't, don't worry. Yeah, I... I it... <laughs> You know, there was an article, Mike, in, in Time Magazine decades ago. And, and on the cover, uh, there was a, a picture of a soldier. And the title of the, the the headline was Who'll Fight for America? So I think it's been, you know, it's been something that's been controversial for millennia. Uh, you look back in the history and then the Greek city states like Athens and Sparta, and military service was part of being a citizen. Uh, in Israel today, it's part of being a citizen and so I think um and I think without waving the flag for the military I think the military is a a, is a way that we all um learn to accept diversity because there are people from all walks of life and you have to get along with them uh so you know I I think there is um there are pockets uh of, of folks who think that if not a draft, then um, compulsory national service wouldn't be too much to ask. Yeah. So, um, and that comes up from time to time, but there's not enough of a groundswell where anyone's really talking about it that seriously.
1: Yeah. I remember my father tells a story. He, um, you know, his, he's, uh, what how old is he? Uh, he's he's going to be 86 this year. Um, he desperately wanted to join the Marines uh, right out of high school and they wouldn't take him because he was too his he wasn't heavy enough for his height. He's very tall. He's a 6'3 six, 64 and the man couldn't put on weight. Um uh so they they couldn't they couldn't get him in. His father who was a police lieutenant in New Rochelle. Um his father had to pull strings just to get him into the coast guard. Um but but he was from that generation where you no know, that's what you did. You know, you didn't feel like you were you were doing um, right by yourself or by your country, unless you had that military service um, in your background and he, he he looks back on those days as like the finest years of his life um, and I think we 've lost that i mean I think generationally we certainly my generation didn 't feel that way i 'm forty three um, and the generation today i um, I certainly don 't see it within them
0: no, I think we 've um uh, we may have become over focused on careers and uh mega manage young people's careers where the idea of even even having a, a summer where you lifeguarded instead of having an internship, it's like Armageddon. It's like, no, you're throwing my entire career off track and I'll I'll be a failure. So I you know, I don't subscribe to that, but it it does um it does keep coming
1: up. So uh, you mentioned um forthcoming book uh, for duty and honor coming out later this summer. What's the release date for that book? I
0: think it'll probably uh, come out the pipe um, uh, in the, the latter half of August. Is, is right now. It's pretty much on track uh, for that. Brave ship books is the publisher and, um, and they, um, they have a process, which is a good process, but it, um, you know, I'm, I don't make and manage it every day. I just, one day they say, okay,
1: we're done. And what, I mean, when, once the book comes out, because um, w- one of the things that I, I always um, hear from, from other people, I'm curious to, to see if your experience is similar. Um, you write the book, it's edited, it's rewritten, um, it's proofed, you know, all the words are right, the story's there. It's, it's you know, for all intents and purposes, it's, it's on its way to, uh, you know, the Kindle store, it's on its way to Barnes & Noble, et cetera. Um, what happens next and what's the promotion process like for you? Because I, I constantly hear that from some people, hey, writing sometimes is the easy part. It's the marketing that they're challenged with. And, and you know, what do, what do you do in terms of marketing?
0: Well, no, you're, thanks for that question, Mike. And, and if, that, if anything in publishing has changed over the past decades, in my opinion, that's the one that's the most. And, you know, um, back in the day, uh, most people who wrote a novel and were hooked up with one of the major publishers, Simon & Schuster, um, uh, Collins, you name it, there, there were book tours and you went from city to city and did book signings. And, and that was the major marketing. There were ads in newspapers. And that hardly exists anymore, mm. a- unless there's a big name. You mentioned Patterson was doing a book with President Clinton. Sure. That's been advertised in the New York Times and their publisher is interested in recouping. Uh, whatever advance they paid to the president to James Patterson, but today most of the marketing is you're doing it yourself. And the way most of us do that, we um, uh, we put the information on our website. We use social media. We um, we do um, local book signings. You know where you'll you'll contact one of your local bookstores, and uh, particularly if you've done books for them before, and say, Hey, remember when we filled the store up last time? They say yes, and would you like a signing? And they say yes, and, and you kind of do those things, and, and you speak at, at various events. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty much um, do-it-yourself. Uh, but, again, having said that, there's, there's lots of books and courses out there that, that sort of steer you to things that are um, successful and things that are not so successful. And again, one of the things when I do writing seminars is I, I encourage people, for instance, on social media to stick to just a few, because I think the natural inclination is to get out there on everything, get on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Pinterest, and you can exhaust yourself doing that. So, um, you know, it's to, to do it, but, but not to obsess on it.
1: Well, yeah. And then there's the, you know, there's also all sorts of, um, organizations out there claiming they're going to help you, um, with promotion and marketing only to find that, uh, you're spending a lot of money and, and not getting a lot of return on it. And I, I know that specifically, you know, a lot of independent authors I speak with, you know, I hear horror stories about how they've invested, you know, in some cases, tens of thousands of dollars um, that they'll never recoup in, in terms of, right. you know, doing book promotions or price promotions or advertising. And they're just getting the short term sales um, you know, I always think that, you know, one of the biggest pieces of advice that, that I come across is put your book um, on sale for free and uh, see what that does. And of course, you'll move a lot of units, but are they, are they going to be quality readers you're getting um, or are they just, you know, deal seekers? I, I used to see that in, in the consumer packaged goods world when I was you know working on brands like um, Dove and, and Ponds. You know, you, you send out a coupon, your sales spike, and then the repeat rate is non-existent. So I think something similar happens in in book publishing as well.
0: Yeah, no, it's always a crapshoot. And I think uh, you mentioned people spending a lot of money on publicists and whatnot. And I I, I guess if I had one piece of advice, it's, um, you know, before you engage someone like that, use the same sort of due diligence that you would use for um, finding a realtor or selecting a bank or You know, buying something on Amazon and reading the reviews, you know, those sorts of things that that normal due diligence. Sometimes people get so um, enthralled with publishing their book and promoting their book that they forget that due diligence.
1: Yeah, That's right. You you know, they get sold on the you're going to be a star. Um, They want to believe that that's true. and, And sometimes I think rational thought goes out the window.
0: Yes, I think you're exactly
1: right. If, um, you know, as we, as we wrap up here, um, if, if you could, um, one of my favorite movies is Back to the Future. Um, And, and, you know, I just, I love the premise of that movie. You know, what would happen if you went back in time and and saw your parents dating Um, and, and hopefully not, uh, (laughs) not screw anything up. But um, if you could go back in time and whisper some advice into your younger self's ear, about um about how to make it as a writer what would you tell your younger self
0: oh gosh um not to make all the mistakes i made no Um, (laughs) yeah i don't know that's um that's an intriguing question mike i i guess um i i guess i would say um read more of what you want to write um you know, my reading habits were, have been and still remain somewhat very eclectic and cover a wide spectrum. And so, um, you know, when I started writing military thriller novels, I'm not sure I, uh, leveraged all the good military thriller writers out there and, you know, picked their best practices by reading their books. So I would say, you know, once you, you find a, a genre that you like, it'd be read, uh, lots and lots of those and different writers, not just, not just the one you really, really like.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing how much you can learn um, just by reading the work of other people who do what it is you want to do successfully. Um, And, and, and other people who, who have, who have posed that question to, that's one of the first things that, that comes to mind. Specifically, if you want to make it as a writer, you've got to be a pretty avid reader. Um, And uh, I mean, I noticed myself, you know, now when when I read books and I, I, I'm a pretty avid reader myself. um, I'm, I'm, I'm underlining and circling things and putting notes in the margins, not about the story itself, but how something was executed or, you know, how they, how they, how they handled a certain situation or how they build tension, you know, those, those kinds of things, because, you know, I, 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 you know, I always say in, in my professional career, you know, I want to learn from the masters, you know, who do what I do. And same thing with, with writing or my aspiring writing career. Like I wanna learn from the masters and, and that's one way to do it is to, to read um, read from read and learn from them.
0: Yeah, no, I think your advice is is spot on and I couldn't have said it any better.
1: Uh, is there anything else you'd like to say, George, uh, to, to anybody who's listening out there, um, either looking for advice or looking for a little bit of inspiration from, from somebody with uh, a very long and successful career in the Navy to, uh, and, and bridging over to uh, certainly having uh, success in, in uh, the, the publishing world, you know, both um, nonfiction and fiction? Anything else you'd like to say as, as a parting thought to all those eager listeners out there? Yeah,
0: no, thanks for that, Mike. I, well, I, I just say, um, you know, write what you're passionate about and write what you know. Uh, you know something about so you, are not having to look everything up. And I'll, I'll give you one small example. I had a, a woman, a delightful woman, in, in my writing seminar last year, and uh, she had crafted this 200,000-word dystopian, um, you know, twilight thing novel and it was you know really complicated and almost bizarre and then we're on a break we're having a conversation and oh what are you doing this summer oh we're doing my husband and I and our two kids are doing what we do every summer we're um we're traveling and we, we're going to travel for two months and each year we go somewhere different we go to South America we go to Europe we go to Africa we go wherever and uh, one thing we do as a family is we pack everything we need For those two months in a backpack. And I said, What are you talking about? She said, Yeah, this is, we have a backpack and you only get to take what you can fit in the backpack. And I said, That's your book. (laughs) That's your book. How many families travel with, you know, they look like they're going on a safari with so much luggage. If you can help people travel and put everything they need in a backpack, you've got a great book. And so she's writing that book now and she's passionate about it. Whereas the, novel she was writing she was just writing cuz she thought that was something she should do so um yeah i mean i think that small nugget is just um um you know write what you're passionate about and you know a lot about and you know other people want to know about
1: yeah and, and that's another great piece of advice and you know it, it's one of these things where you know if, if i'm reading something and i and i realize that you know the author is phoning it in um and it happens you know when people try you know genres that are um sort of not, you know, not not what they're passionate about. So, you know, for example, with, um, with the, uh, I call it the Fifty Shades phenomenon, but um, that pretty much like blew up, um, you know, a certain category, a certain genre. And then, but you see people who are kind of writing in that genre um, almost disingenuously just to try and cash in. It, um, they, you, could, you could actually see it from a mile away that they're not, this is not something that they're, you know, all that interested or skilled at. motivations for doing it might be a little off. So this idea of writing what you know and what you're passionate about is is, um, is spot on.
0: Yeah, I think you phrased it uh, more um, uh, eloquently than I did, but you're exactly right.
1: (laughs) Well, very good. Uh, George, I I enjoyed this conversation. I think it's one of the best I've ever done.
0: Well, you're too kind to say that. And again, as I I said at the beginning, it's um, one thing we love to do is uh, connect with... um, Connect with our readers, so uh, I appreciate this opportunity to to be on your um, uh, on your podcast, and, and look forward to doing more downstream.
1: And along those lines, since I know you like connecting with your readers, where can your readers go and my listeners go um, to uh, to connect with you? Well, no, thanks for asking.
0: Uh, if if you go to my my website, in fact, to make it easier, if you just Google my name, uh, George Calderisi. Um, It'll take you to links and and one of the links uh, right at the top is my website and it will talk about the books I've done and talk about the writing tips, which I uh, like to share with, uh, with fellow writers and go on from there. That's probably the best way to connect.
1: Right. And uh, those of you who do go to the site, don't forget to, in addition to going to the about section and the books where you're learning all about George and his writing the services and blog as well, has a lot of great, great information on there. Great advice for, uh, for aspiring writers and um, and seasoned writers as well. Right. Thanks, Mike. Thank you very much. Well, that's my interview with George Galdarisi. You can learn more about George by visiting his website, com, or... Just searching for uh, his name, George Galderisi, using whatever search engine you like. And I'm sure his website will come up right there at the top. He's got a lot of great content on that site. And it's really uh, some, some great advice for both aspiring as well as established writers. Uh, I know that uh, you'll find it valuable. Be on the lookout for his next book for duty and honor later this summer. And of course, if you want to learn more about me and my writing, please visit michaelcarlinauthor.com. And that's Carlin with an O and not an I. Of course, I'd like to throw people off. Uh, If you like what you heard on this episode of Uncorking a Story, I encourage you to go to the archives and listen to all the great interviews that we've recorded over the years. And if you like what you hear, please, please, please share it with a friend. We uh, really appreciate that when you do. So for all of us here at Uncorking a Story, this is Mike Carlin still recovering from his night out at the Taylor Swift concert last night saying, thanks for listening and until next time.